Good evening, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And as we all know, the famous, the infamous dictum in all criminal investigations, as we all should know from years of media indoctrination by now, is follow the money. Follow the money, the most important rule that all criminal investigators know in any criminal investigation, because the money trail always leads us to the true perpetrators of the crime. And that, my friends, is, in fact, uh, although it does come from fiction, is, in fact, a very sage piece of advice because it really does work. The money trail is one of the most important and deciding factors in any serious criminal investigation. But, as we all know, or I'm sure many of us know by now, the money trail when it comes to 9-11 was not only not followed vigorously by the authorities and regulators that were supposedly investigating it, those uh, those uh, transparencies and ano- or those anomalies, but uh, it was actively covered up. And why was that? Well, that, my friends, is a very good question and is, in fact, the focus of a brand-new book called Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology. It's available from Trinday Publishing at trinday.com. So I hope you will all go and take a look for this book. I have a copy here in my hands, and tonight we have on the line the author of this brand-new book, Mark Gaffney. So let's bring him up and start talking. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Jim, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we have talked once before back on CorbettReport.com, so some of the listeners out there might already be familiar with you. Uh, Others are probably encountering you for the first time. Let's start talking about this brand new book, Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology. Let's talk a little bit about the genesis of the book and uh, what got, got you prompted in this investigation. Well, this is a continuing investigation for my first book, The 9-11 Mystery Plane, published in 2008. <clears throat> and, you know, there were loose ends and and things that uh, I picked up in my research that needed more attention, and I was just naturally uh, uh, led to, uh, you know, uh, to do a second book. Basically, it beat me, you know. Well, exactly. I I think this is just one of the most fascinating parts of the whole 9-11 story for me because it hasn't really been thoroughly investigated by very many people, or at least not in a a thorough book like this. So I think it's a very valuable contribution in general. Uh, Let's start talking about some of the research that you did for the book. Terrific. Um, Well, the book covers uh, a lot of ground. Um, The uh, Yeah, I propose an alternative shoot-down scenario for the fourth plane, uh, United Flight 93 that went down in Shanksville. And the surprising thing is that when you look at it, there is no physical evidence, uh, to my knowledge, that supports the official story about the crash of that fourth plane. We were led to believe, uh, we've been led to believe that the uh, hijackers just, you know, nosed the plane down when they were being besieged by passengers. But that is just a legend, and I'm not aware of any actual evidence that supports it. And there's a lot of evidence that uh, points in a different direction, and that's what I uh, talk about in Black 9-11. That's one part of the book. Another part of the book, we look at the uh, issue of insider trading, and uh, and there's a number of banks that come under, under scrutiny, uh, the Bank of New York, and I should add other financial institutions like AIG, uh, Citigroup, uh, and a few others. Indeed, and, and I that, believe that you know, most, most of the evidence uh, is open sourced, you know, but I pulled a lot of stuff together. And I did have uh, 
I did r- rely on some uh, whistleblowers uh, provided extra material for me. Well, that's right. In fact, including Richard Grove, who is uh, one right. of the, the good friends of this broadcast, and he's over at TragedyAndHope.com. So uh, a very interesting book, lots of very interesting material. I must confess I've got my review copy here in my hands, and I'm only about halfway through the book so far, but already quite riveting and uh, revealed some things that even I was not aware of, and I've been researching this quite thoroughly for a while. So very interesting stuff. So let's take a short break. We're going to take a couple-minute breather, but we'll be right back with Mark Gaffney to talk more about Black 9-11 right after this. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Tonight, we're talking to Mark Gaffney, the author of a new book called Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology, which examines 9-11 from a number of, well, not necessarily neglected, but uh, but not as thoroughly researched perspectives, including geopolitical context and the economic context, the financial context of the attacks and what really made it all possible. Some very interesting points revealed here regarding a number of uh, interesting asset facets of that day, including the insider trading, which I'd like to say is infamous at this point, but uh, of course there are always people who are just discovering about this type of information, which is why books like this are so important. But over and above what we already know about the the put options on United uh, Airlines and other uh, stocks on that day, and over and above what a lot of people know about the cover-up of that in the 9-11 Commission report, which tends to gloss over all of this with a, uh, a footnote that does very little to explain anything. Uh, there's also some fascinating tidbits revealed in this book. Uh, for example, the minutes of a meeting that was conducted in 2003, a briefing between uh, certain members of the SEC, talking about how FBI agents had been passed information in the immediate wake of 9-11 that led them to uh, at least investigate certain individuals who were tied into some of this insider trading. It leads back to a very interesting individual with a very interesting name, uh, that ties in directly to 9-11. Uh, let's start talking about this memorandum, which was only declassified in 2009. Yes, indeed. The uh, the individual was, the name of the individual was uh, uh, deciphered by uh, uh, Kevin Ryan. He did some nice detective work on this. I think what he did was cross-checked uh, different uh, reports, and, uh, you know, the censors are not 100% efficient, and uh, sometimes in one report... Uh, uh, they'll do it one way, and another another report they do it a little different. And sometimes you can piece together and cross-check and come up with the name of somebody. And that's what uh, Kevin Ryan did. And it turned out that the uh, the individual named by SEC was none other than Wirt Walker III, a distant cousin of uh, President G.W. Bush. Sorry, Mark, your your audio just cut out for a second when you were saying that. So if you could just back up and repeat that. Did sentence. I repeat it? Yes. Uh, yeah, the name was, I <laughs> that makes me wonder, you know, what did, did that just cut out or what? But, um, it was uh, Kevin Ryan who did some nice detective work and identified the name in the report that had been deleted. It had been blacked out, but he was able to, uh, identify it through some nice detective work. And the name was Wirt Walker III, uh, cousin to, uh, President G.W. Bush. Well, you got it out that time. Yes, Wirt Walker III, a distant cousin of the president. Well, nothing suspicious there, right? You know, they purchased, he and his wife uh, purchased 56,000 shares of stock in Stratasec, 
one of the companies that provided security at the World Trade Center right up until the day of the attack and uh, apparently uh, made, I think, 50000 on it. The, you know, this thing just, the uh, investment paid off right away uh, a matter of days. So it seems that there were people in the know who just could not resist putting their hand in the cookie jar, taking advantage of that insider knowledge. And uh, the thing is that the SEC, they just blinked at this. You know, and the uh, the FBI wouldn't would not even conduct a single interview. They said, well, because of course, Ward Walker has no ties to terrorism, uh, therefore there couldn't be any reason to pursue the investigation. <clears throat> I mean, this just, you know, <laughs> it makes you just go crazy thinking about uh, this kind of logic. It's just crazy. Indeed, and of course, that's the exact logic that the 9/11 Commission report ended up uh, putting into their uh, into their final report by saying, "Oh well, it, if there was no ties to Al Qaeda, then obviously these people had nothing to do with it." So that's the way that they've managed to elide over this. But it's good to see that people are still digging up and uh, and trying to find the the bottom of this. Of course, we haven't found the bottom yet. No, but we haven't uh, found so. the bottom. This is a, a, a this should have been a headline on in every newspaper on the planet. And of course, nobody in knows. In a reasonable it. society, yes. Yes. Well, let's let's take a look at some of the other aspects of that investigation. In fact, one of the ones that always really I found extremely fascinating because so few people still, I think, know anything about it is the story of Convar, which was hired to go through the rubble of the WTC and go through the uh, the hard drives that were recovered from various of the financial institutions that were at, located at the World Trade Center and uh, to try to recover the data from those hard drives. Let's talk a little bit about that story. Yes, this was reported by Reuters and CNN back in December 2001, uh, and then the story just dropped off the, uh, you know, the cliff. We never heard anything more about it. But apparently it was the U.S. Department of Defense that had hired, I believe it was the Department of Defense, I have to check my own notes here, but... Convar was a company that had in Europe, German company that had a, an, a state-of-the-art process for recovering data from damaged hard drives, and they were handed 400 damaged hard drives from the World Trade Center, and they were able to recover a lot of data, um, uh, and they came up with the shocking discovery that there were a lot of transactions going on that pointed to insider trading. And uh, this was briefly reported in uh, Reuters and CNN, and then the story just dropped off a cliff, and we had they never heard anything more about it. And the ramifications of this are particularly horrifying when you start to think about it, because it did show they were beginning to show that there was, or, or coming up with some information that backed up the the claim that had been made that there was a, a, a huge surge in activity during the hours that the attacks were taking place, and the idea being that there was uh, someone or some entity or some entities that were t- taking advantage of the confusion of that day in order to put some transactions across that uh, that would be unscrutinized. So uh, so we still don't know the nature of that, but even the fact that there was some of this physical confirmation happening, and then, as you say, this story kind of dropped off the face of the planet. Now, no, yeah, let, me there has been... a, let me read a quote from one of the articles. Uh, uh, they At that point, they had only examined 39 of the hard drives. There were still a lot more uh, that were... Uh, going to be uh, looked at, but they had already uncovered uh, evidence, and here's a quote, unusually large sums of money, perhaps more than $100 million, were rushed through the computers as the disaster unfolded. And uh, they, they, not only was the volume, but the size of the transactions was far higher than usual for a day like that. 
So they were very suspicious about it, and uh, but again, this just disappeared. So, and the suggestion has been made that uh, that there was a, another company, Kroll, that was involved in buying out the company that was doing that uh, forensic analysis. Do we have anything to back that up? Uh, Kroll. Oh, you mean uh, yes? As far as I know, that was never substantiated. Uh, mm. So we don't know what happened. Uh, I don't have a source in Germany. You know, I was hoping to try to contact somebody in Germany that could do some footwork on this, but I just was never able to get it done. I just couldn't make that contact. But that would be, there's another thread if somebody wants to pick up uh, and Absolutely. pick it up and do some more Absolutely, uh, and I know that I do have German listeners out there, so I, if, yes. if anyone out there wants to take up this uh, torch, this is an extremely important story that we uh, we could definitely do with some more information on, so I hope someone out there will do that. But this also, in a way, ties into, as we mentioned before the break, uh, Richard Grove and his story about what was happening that day. Let's talk a little bit about that. Richard Grove has a very interesting story to tell. And, you know, I first encountered his story on the Internet back in 2006, and I filed it away. You know, it seemed very interesting, but I was I was working on other stuff at the time. I finally got around to it later, came back to it, when I realized that uh, when I discovered all these strange coincidences with regard to Marshall McLennan, which had offices in World Trade Center 1, uh, right in the, at the impact site of the first plane, and uh, and there were a lot of other coincidences uh, regarding uh, the Greenberg family. Uh, Marshall McLennan, uh, actually, there was uh, that company was on the SEC, li- SEC list and had the highest, second highest number of put options after United. And that was very fishy, I thought. And then there were uh, it was the, the Greenberg family. There the links with Kroll, that uh, private investigation firm that had a security contract with all of the uh, with and had access to all the buildings that were destroyed, including uh, Building Seven, where uh, one of Kroll's directors, Jerome Hauer, was uh, was the manager of uh, Giuliani's. Office of Emergency Management, and they were on the 23rd floor of Building 7. I mean, there's just so many connections here. And then in 1998, AIG uh, invested uh, $1.35 billion in the Blackstone Group, uh, and Maurice Greenberg had actually been on the uh, advisory board of the, that uh, Blackstone Group since 1989. And in uh, October 2000, the uh, Blackstone uh Purchased the mortgage secured by Building Seven, and there's so many connections here. And the and the 9/11 Commission just whiffed on all of it. They just didn't go there. Unfortunately, so, but perhaps predictably so, given that you wanted to talk about Richard Grove. Let's uh, let's get into that. Um, He actually uh, was a software was involved in a software company, and they were they had a a contract with Marshall McLennan to provide this state of the art uh, software. Uh, and it was actually going to link not just Marshall McLennan, but the, uh, I think also AIG. And, uh, yeah, he first went public in 2006. The, uh, the deal was inked in October 2000 with Marshall McLennan. And Grove was actually the, uh, the, uh, on the guy who was providing the, uh, a liaison between the software developers and Marshall McLennan. So he was right in the middle of it, and he noticed there were fiscal irregularities in this uh, the papers that were going across his desk as early as uh, 2000. 
brought them to the attention of various executives, both in his own company and Marston McLennan, was told to keep his mouth shut. Later, he was, uh, it's a long story, but uh, the, the, the punchline is when he, uh, he had actually made friends with some of the people at Marston McLennan, and they were also convinced that something untoward was going on, and it, it built up to a meeting that was supposed to take place on the morning of 9-11 at the uh, Marston McLennan offices where they were going to confront a one of the executives about all this with evidence yes, that there was... absolutely. Well, uh, just hold on. on a second. Just hold on a second. We have, we're coming up to a break. We'll finish the story right after this. Again, talking to Mark Gaffney of Black 9-11. You know it's time to get the bastards, prosecutors, Freemasons, and all the people in the shadows, as you see us, match the We're back here on Corporate Report Radio tonight talking to Mark Gaffney, the author of Black 9-11. Before the break there, we were talking about the story of Richard Grove, who was a salesman for a representative for Silverstream Technologies, which was providing software for Martian McLennan, a, a gigantic financial institution which had offices in the World Trade Center. Uh, he noticed financial irregularities in their transactions and was uh, reporting it to his superiors, was summarily terminated for that, despite having successfully renegotiated the contract between Silverstream and Martian McLennan, and months later was on his way to a meeting in the World Trade Center with members of uh, Martian uh, McLennan, who he had uh, befriended and who he was uh, on board with in terms of trying to get to the bottom of these irregularities. So let's just finish up with that story. Uh, yes, Jim, and uh, the what happened was that he was late for the meeting, and uh, the uh, Marshall McLennan executive had promised to uh, uh, participate in the meeting through a telephone link from his uptown Manhattan apartment. He wasn't going to be there in person, but uh, because uh, Grove was delayed by traffic, heavy Manhattan traffic, he, he was late, and he got there after the impact. And he was down on V.C. Street uh, when the second plane hit the... Uh, uh, building two and never made it, of course, and that's the only reason he lived to tell the tale. So, uh, a, by the way, I should add tale. That Really? Yes, please. It's quite a tale, and um, uh, if it stood alone, you know, you might wonder about it, but because of all the other evidence that we've already discussed, uh, and there's more in the book, uh, it has a special uh, resonance to me. But um, and by the way, uh, Richard did uh, provide documentation to you know prove show that he is who he says he is, and he uh, you know he showed his tax statements. Uh, he did have that job. There's no question. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'm sure many of my listeners will already be familiar with his story, but uh, it's interesting also how that ties in with the bigger picture because obviously there were some very important offices, some uh, some big financial institutions in those uh, towers. So the question might arise in some people's minds, well, if this was a conspiracy of some sort, wouldn't important people have been in the building? And, of course, we've uh, heard from people like Ann Tatlock that, uh, that many of the people who had, who were in charge of companies that had offices in World Trade Center were off, uh, for example, at the, uh, the uh, annual golf tournament of people like Warren Buffett o- over in Omaha and were actually uh, there at Offutt Air Force Base when President Bush just happened to drop in on them and give them a personal uh, talking to that, that very day. So... Uh, unfortunately, the it, it just keeps getting more and more horrific the more you 
dig into it. But let, let's turn yes. for a moment to the to the foreword to the book, which I, I note was written by uh, Aidan Monahan, who we've also had on this program before. Let's let's talk a little bit about that uh, foreword. Well, Aidan uh, did some good, great research showing that the uh, um, global positioning guided uh, 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 remote access and control technology uh, already existed at the time of um, the 9-11 attacks, and it could have been used and could explain uh, how these planes were flown into the buildings the way they were, uh, which is extraordinary when you consider that the, the hijacker pilots were rank amateurs. None of them really had the expertise to fly uh, Boeing 757s and 767s. So, uh, And we've learned since 9-11 just how difficult it is to fly planes at high speed into a buildings. Very difficult. Very difficult indeed. In fact, uh, in my first book, earlier book, I uh, tell a story about a uh, flight instructor who was training experienced pilots to fly uh, a Boeing 737, which was a smaller plane. And they were in a uh, simulator uh, training facility in Phoenix when 9-11 happened, and they um, went back into the training uh, uh facility there I, you know, they were they were out watching the watching the 9/11 events unfold on television then afterwards they were stuck at the airport so they decided to go back into the uh, simulator and see if they could hit the building so they set the thing up to to fly a plane into the World Trade Center but none of them could do it at high speed and these were experienced pilots absolutely and of course the common retort by people who haven't really looked into this is oh it, it, how hard could it be all you got to do is steer and you can steer into a building but they don't really understand not only the the physical difficulties of that but also the the precise uh, arcs and and other things that were uh, uh, that the planes actually took that day are also indicative of, of some sort of remote control and uh, and also the precise uh, placement of the the, the planes the, exactly where they hit seem to be Strategic and uh, strategically um, ch- chosen points of of those buildings. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about that. I thought Aiden uh, Monahan did a good job of uh, laying out the evidence. Um, yeah, if the plane, for example, if the seven sixty seven, say flight one seventy five, had started its arcing turn just one second earlier or one second later, it probably would have missed the building entirely. So the the precision was phenomenal and. And there was a crosswind also, so there were, you know, this was not an easy, uh, this was not an easy, uh, flight approach into that tower. It was very difficult. And, um, uh, I have talked with, uh, for example, another pilot, uh, a pilot named Rob Balsamo, who flew 757s. He's the, one of the founders of, uh, Pilots for 9-11 Truth, and he tried to fly a Boeing 757 in a simulator into the Pentagon. And it took him a repeated attempt before he was able to do it. Once again, not nearly as easy as it looks, and uh, the Pentagon in particular was a particularly difficult maneuver. Well, we've been kind of jumping all throughout the book because there is so much ground to cover, but we've got a big, long 18-minute segment coming up, so hold on as we start to really dig into this book and what the information it has. If you want to join us on air, 1-800-313-9443. We'll put you up on the air to talk with Mark Gaffney. So more just after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
to the broadcast. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to Mark H. Gaffney, the author of a new book, Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology from Trine Day Press. And, Mark, is there a website for this book specifically? Yes, there is, Jim. Your listeners can go uh, to TrineDay.com to, uh, to look at the cover, and uh, if they want to order a copy, they can do that. That's my publisher's website, and that is spelled T as in Tom, R-I-N-E-D-A-Y, dot com. Excellent. Well, I hope people will go there to check that out. And, uh, and of course, Trine Day does a lot of really interesting publications, so they can take a look at that while they're there as well. So, as I said before the break, we have been jumping around to quite a few different topics, but I just want to give people sort of a, a feel of the scope of this book. There's quite a lot of information, and I think a lot of things worth checking out, including something I'd like to flesh out in a little bit more detail and take a closer look at, which is an interesting, I, I hesitate to use the word diversion because I think that, that dismisses the information. I think it's extremely important and interesting, but not necessarily all about 9-11 itself. Uh, you d- devote a chapter to the American International Group, AIG, and its history and how it ties into what happened on 9-11. Let's talk a little bit about AIG and why it's important to this story. Well, I wanted to show that the um, the evidence uh, strongly supports uh, our suspicions because if you look at the record of AIG and Hank Greenberg, um, this is open source material, uh, mind you. Uh, there's no question that uh, AIG was engaging in criminal activity on a massive scale. And I think that this record, even though it's not directly related to 9/11, uh, shows that we have we have executives here who are have no problem, you know, committing massive fraud, uh, you know, over and over again. And then when the company went, you know, basically bankrupt, they uh, took advantage of the largest bailout in U.S. history. And so the 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 record of criminal activity supports our suspicions about 9-11, and that's why I devoted that chapter to AIG. Exactly right, and and it is such an interesting history that a lot of people don't know about. Let's talk about some of the characters that have been involved, from Cornelius Starr to Hammer and Hank Greenberg, and and their connections to the intelligence agencies. Well, yes, uh the uh, AIG was uh, got its start in Asia, even though it was an American company. And during World War II, they were working hand in glove with the uh, OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And uh, <clears throat> after the this was uh, before the Japanese invasion of China, and then after that, they had uh, they were compelled to relocate to New York, and uh, were in they actually shared offices with uh, William Donovan's OSS there in New York City. They were doing research for the U.S. intelligence community throughout the war, trying to, you know, ferret out information about the Japanese war machine and how the U.S. could uh, uh, title everything from, uh, you know, the the tides to uh, uh, blueprints of Japanese uh, war factories and so on. And they were even, as the war drew to an end, they were trying to figure out uh, how the... uh, uh, fascists could, you know, might get away with uh, a lot of money by laundering it through insurance, uh, insurance contracts, and so on. 
Right, quite a, a lucrative business uh, to be in in that sense of being able to facilitate those transactions internationally, even during times of war, and 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 being able to extend across borders. Obviously, quite a handy thing for the inter- intelligence services to be able to worm its way into in one way or another. And AIG I, was important th- because it was so international. I mean, this is a this is a company where it does most of its business uh, uh, out of the United States, and they have offices in over a hundred countries. Exactly. So you can see that would be perfect, in Shanghai, perfect in for intelligence. Right, exactly. And, uh, and of course, that tradition continued uh, when Maurice uh, Greenberg took over the company. And I believe, if I recall this correctly, he was actually uh, considered for director of central intelligence at a certain point, but turned it down in order to continue the helmsmanship of AIG. That's right. And during the years uh, 1987 88 up until 2000, AIG racked up just un- unprecedented profits and expanded, um, uh, just bas- basically blew away the competition in the insurance business. And, but it's interesting if you look back, uh, you know, we, we really don't have the full story about what was going on with AIG during this period. Uh, you have in, and AIG had a presence in the uh, Philippines, for example, and you know, the, during this period, there was a tremendous amount of corruption with the Marcos regime, and uh, uh, there's a chapter in my book about the uh, this uh, the Yamashita Gold, or Yamashita is the way it's pronounced, I guess, in Japan. The uh, there may have been a, a role by uh, that AIG played there. You know, I was not able to fair uh, to dig it out, and, but uh, the presence of AIG at that time is is very suspicious. And uh, you also have, uh, during the same period, the, the huge increase in the profiting from drug trafficking in the world in the late 80s. So all these things seem to be uh, to coincide when, with the decision that uh, Hank Greenberg made to take his insurance company into the financial services sector. Well, as I say, a fascinating piece of the puzzle that connects in in so many ways with a lot of the different characters who kind of surround this. But we do have a caller on the line, so let's get him in on this conversation. We have Art in Philly. So, Art, thanks for the call tonight. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay. I was going to ask if you did any research on uh, Michael Milliken's role in all of this, especially when World Trade Center went down. He's a convicted felon related with uh, bond trading. He had insider relations with um, a lot of the fraud that was going on before this. And uh, he was a major investor in Enron along with Ken Lay to the point that Ken Lay and Michael Milliken uh, approached Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was running to be governor of California it says, if we support you to be governor of California, will you drop the $9 billion lawsuit against us for um, the fraud of uh, Enron, where the state of California was suing, that, suing those two individuals for their personal assets for that amount of money? And also the ties of Michael Milliken to the Likud, Stephen Wynn, and uh, Sheldon Adelson. Have you seen any of those ties? No, that's an area I never got into. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, I wish I had had a uh, chance, you know, space and time to do that. But uh, I really had my hands full with what I was, what I had already taken on. Um, yeah, that's 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 an area of fruitful area for further research. Indeed, I did some research on it. There's a website called NoPlaceForCorruption.com, 
And if you look at the document section of it, there is a downloadable file that uh, provides a lot of details in this area. No place for corruption.com? Yep. Okay, great. Thanks. I'll take a look. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't. Uh, I. I. The, the name doesn't ring a bell, but I, I'd be interested to see more about those connections. Well, so. I know that Milken was uh, one of the first, one of the pioneers to get into the uh, derivative uh, uh, industry, and uh, this thing is just stinks to heaven. I mean, you know, this they've they've destroyed our country with derivatives, and uh, there's a there's some discussion of that in the book too, but. Um, Absolutely. Well, creating the uh, the false instruments out of nothing that uh, that leverage the money into unbelievable realms, and then signing the taxpayers yes. on to bail out the financial institutions once they go under. It's just uh, it's a great scam, I guess, if you can direct it. That's right. <laughs> great for the, the small group of men who are benefiting. Exactly. Well, it, I, for everybody I, else. it would be funny. It would it would genu- genuinely be funny if it wasn't so uh, horrific. The, the scale and scope of what they've managed to accomplish, and I think 9/11 has to be seen as a as a part in that larger picture. That's why I think concentrating endlessly on the, the the technical details, the physical anomalies of that day, will never get us to the bigger picture of how that ties into this much much bigger picture of of the fraud that's taken place financially and geopolitically, and in terms of uh, in foreign invasions, etc. There's a pattern that I think this starts to fit into. And uh, I think you do a lot, a good job of pointing out so many different parts of that pattern. In fact, uh, you also raise uh, an interesting theory about in the wake of, uh, well, actually, just around the time of George H.W. Bush's New World Order speech and how there was a cadre that may have been amassing a CIA slush fund to use against the, the Ruskies that, that ended up perhaps as part of this puzzle. Perhaps we can talk about that a little bit. Yes, you know, I thought I was done with the book when uh, my publisher and I just coincidentally at the same time stumbled upon the uh, paper by E.P. Heidner called uh, Collateral Damage, which he posted back in 2008, and I had I didn't know anything about it, and and this delayed the uh, completion of the book by about seven months. So I diverted devoted four chapters to uh, looking at this, and uh, my goodness, it's just. It takes you to a whole nother level uh, in terms of you know what was the real motive and and the money trail because what Heidner had proposed was that the um, he spent six years on his investigation uh, and the link to his paper is in the book but he he concluded that uh, that the attacks were in large part uh, involved securities fraud and and an attempt to cover up a covert a uh, major covert operation by people around George H.W. Uh, Bush um, to take down Russia, to deconstruct Russia um, after the Cold War. In fact, the Cold War never ended, uh, according to this line of thinking. I've, strangely, I found a lot of evidence supporting it. Um, I think it's too soon to be able to say for sure, uh, but uh, there's a lot of evidence uh, that's something uh, very fishy went on. Um, uh, the Bank of New York is right at the center of this, and I devote a good part of a chapter talking about this. The Bank of New York ought to be called the Crime Bank of New York. Um, they were involved in a major money laundering operation during the 90s, and we uh, involving uh, the looting of Russia and uh even as they were being investigated, 
for money laundering, and the investigation continued. Uh, it was delayed by the 9-11 attacks, eventually continued. Um, in 2012, the uh, Attorney General of New York filed suit against the bank for a major uh, uh, foreign currency exchange manipulation scheme that he claims bilked customers out of at least another $2 billion. Uh, and this was going on, get this, this was going on even while the bank was being investigated for a major money laundering operation that was that happened in the 90s. So, I mean, there is no shame here. You know, these guys, uh, <laughs> you know, they just, even as they were making promises to reform and you know, introduce these new uh, 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 practices that would prevent fraud, they were engaging in it at the same time so right and uh, only psychopaths could get away with that with a, with a straight face something so bold and in your face but certainly that does tie in uh to some of the, the picture that was painted for example by another trine day author daniel eschelin in his book uh, shadow masters where he was talking about the financial plundering of russia that took place in the 90s that, with um, obviously inside help and billions and billions of dollars being sucked out of russia and uh and the people left in just a deplorable state and as always it's the people who suffer for these massive crimes that take place on this type of scale. And uh, 9-11, just another example of that that seems to fit into that pattern, which uh, goes back at least uh, to, to Iran-Contra, as you note here, with uh, Iran-Contra also continuing even as it was being, quote-unquote, investigated. That's right. And the Bank of New York uh, may have engaged in some fishy uh, money laundering uh, right after the 9-11 attacks as well uh, that may have been connected with this cabal, this bush cabal, because it appears that the uh, the, the fails, the, the the chaos that ensued after 9-11 resulted in tremendous, um, uh, well, this is a long discussion, you know, I can't, I can't sum it up very easily, but um, failed transactions because in the securities market. Um, the security uh, market actually never opened on 9/11 because they, I mean, they they opened earlier, and it was the it was the uh, stock market that did not open. Excuse me, um, the stock market opens at nine, I believe, and the securities market opens at uh, much earlier, and they had already uh, processed something like 600 billion in uh, securities trading on 9/11, and a lot of these. Uh, this trading ran into trouble because of uh, uh, they call them fails or failed transactions uh, when uh, uh, a company is not able to deliver securities on time because the securities were not delivered to them and they back up you get this tremendous backup and they call them uh, a daisy chain of failed transactions but the thing is the point is that these transactions this fails these fails which amounted to as much as $100 billion per week in the weeks after 9-11. There may have been several hundred billion dollars in failed transactions over just a few weeks, appeared to be concentrated at the Bank of New York. And this was never explained. The Securities and Exchange Commission never explained it. The Fed never explained it. And, in fact, there were stories in the New York press that, appeared to obfuscate what was going on. And this is also documented in the book. 
Another thing that this all brings to mind for me is that this is another example of the dog that didn't bark, exactly as the uh, the lack of air defense on that day is, is, I think, a major red flag for anyone who understands what should have been happening in the skies that day. I think also people who understand the ways that uh, that obviously the markets are closely monitored for this type of unusual activity, with given all of the type of unusual activity that was taking place in the days and weeks beforehand, there certainly would have been enough red flags for something to have been happening if uh, the people who were supposedly in charge of the regulation were interested in in investigating into that. And I think it's another example of the type of stand-down that, that uh, enabled 9-11 to take place. The SEC, uh, I believe the investigation uh, that they pursued was initially honest, but it quickly turned south in the other direction, and I think that when they got in there and realized just how much uh, insider trading was going on, they basically just walked away from it. They uh, they didn't want to go there. And it was like I used the analogy in the book of a surgeon who opens up a patient on the operating, an operating room table to remove a cancer and then discovers that the cancer has metastasized through the system and just sews them back up again. Unfortunately so. I think at a certain point, uh, this the scope of what was happening must have uh, really dawned on some people who thought they were really going to conduct an investigation. I think some people probably, at least uh, if they didn't get an offer they couldn't refuse, they at least understood that that was implicit. But again, that's just speculation on my part. And uh, no speculation needed on, in this book, Black 9-11, an incredible journey. So we'll be back to wrap up this conversation with Mark Gaffney right after these messages. Hey friends, here we are back in the final few minutes of Corporate Report Radio, and as the, the men sing in the song, we have bombed them all in the name of this lie that has been perpetuated, the 9-11 lie, so interrogating that myth is one of the most important things that we can be doing in this day and age where the national security state and the apparatus associated with it is being built up continuing in this name of this uh, al-Qaeda boogeyman that uh, that obviously there is much, much more to 9-11 than that side of this story. So once again, I will direct people to the Trine Day site, trineday.com, T-R-I-N-E-D-A-Y.com, to find out more about this new book, Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology by Mark H. Gaffney. So, Mark, just in the final few minutes here, talking about, obviously, all of the, the nightmare that we've seen unfold over the past decade that's been justified by this 9-11 myth that's been created, what can you say about the importance of, of doing this work in exposing these connections, and uh, and what do you think, where, where are we headed from here? Well, uh, you know, sometimes it's in the course of researching this book, uh, I was up against uh, a lot of dark material, and uh, but... Uh, my view now is rather optimistic, surprisingly. <laughs> Come surprise myself. I think we could be uh, a lot closer to breaking this open, busting the whole thing open, uh, exposing the perpetrators uh, than we than many of us think. Uh, one area of research uh, would be for uh, would be that uh, Flight 93. I think we need to get to have a concerted effort of independent researchers to look at this. I believe there was a contingency plan. Uh, I believe the perpetrators 
took extraordinary risks and exposed themselves because they had to resort to a contingency plan. So we need to get people focused on Flight 93. And I I don't know if it's legal to encourage people to, uh, hackers to hack into the Federal Reserve Bank. That might be illegal to encourage people to do that. But let me just say, if people wanted a challenge, I bet you that if people got in there, they could find some, some really incriminating evidence, which uh, if could be posted on the Internet, would could uh, have play an enormous role in our turn, turning things around in our country if somebody had the moxie to do that. Well, of course, we're not advocating any of those types of activities here on. Oh, the I air, would never but, do uh, that on air. No, exactly. I would never do that. But but of course, uh, anonymous and groups like that, if they if they really were serious about a revolution and things like that, you would think they would be uh, attacking targets like that instead of uh, you know the types of things that we've seen so far. But. I suppose that's up in the air. But but I, I, I certainly hope that you were right, that we are close to cracking this case. And certainly I do believe that the perpetrators are not impenetrable and impervious to all investigation. I think there are some some very big uh, loopholes that they've left open for uh, for people to come in. And that's where I think works like this are so important. So just in the final few moments here, anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners out there about this book or your research? Well, um, just to spread the word because, you know, we're not going to get interviewed. Uh, I'm not going to get interviewed through the mainstream. We're not going to have reviews in <coughs> mainstream journals and newspapers. So um, we need individuals out there to just take initiatives. Absolutely. It's up to uh, the people out there just to, get out. to spread this. Exactly. So uh, do you have a personal website you'd like to direct people to? Not related to this book. Uh, my, I have a website on one of my other books, but... All right, well, then we will direct people to trinday.com to find out more about this book in particular and order yourself a copy to find out more about the details of what we've discussed tonight. And we've really only just skimmed the surface of this uh, really, really in-depth book. So, Mark Gaffney, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Jim. Pleasure to be with you. All right, there he goes, Mark Gaffney. Once again, uh, you can find out more at trinday.com. We're going to have to leave it there as we're right up against the end of the program here. But uh, we will be back tomorrow night with, uh, as I announced earlier, I misspoke last night talking about Aaron Franz. He will be on tomorrow night, so theageoftransitions.com for Aaron Franz, who will be our guest tomorrow night. Until then, thank you all for listening, and take care.